Welcome back to the Health Call Radio Hour. If you've got a question, you don't have to give blood to get the answer. Just drop us a line on the Health Call website at healthcall.live. That's healthcall.live. Or message us on the Health Call Facebook page. Now, back to health and wellness correspondent, Lee Kelso. Welcome back. I'm glad you stay tuned for the second half of the program. You know, it is tough times for health-conscious consumers, right? The political polarization around COVID, it is like nothing I have ever seen. It's hard to evaluate risk and filter what matters from all the hype and the noise. Twitter just on fire these days with stories about healthy young athletes falling to heart attack and stroke. There are cardiologists stepping forward to say the mRNA vaccine should be taken off the market until more independent research is done. And of course, others say they're safe. It's hard for parents to know what to believe. That's why we're taking a look at a new study published in the Journal of the American Heart Association. It was conducted by researchers at the Brigham and Women's Hospital and Massachusetts General Hospital. They investigated 16 adolescents and young adults who developed myocarditis, inflammation of heart tissue, after the mRNA COVID vaccine. To explain what they found, I reached out to Dr. Sam Westrick. He is a bioinformatician and a writer who earned his PhD in genetics. He wrote a summary of this study for the sharing science section of medium.com and did a good job explaining the connection between the vaccine and inflammation of the heart in young adults. He explains it in simple terms whether this problem is something that parents need to be paying attention to. And what they found is that we do see a slightly increased rate. The rate looks to be around one to two people per 100,000 individuals experience some level of myocarditis. But the vast majority of those people, greater than 90% of them, uh, had their symptoms abate with no serious further treatment needed after 90 days. So what do we know about the prevalence in what section of the population in, in this group of patients, who's most likely to have this problem? Yeah, so it's really interesting because for most diseases, we would think that it would be the old and the infirm and people with already existing conditions. But in this case, it seems that the people most likely to experience some level of myocarditis are actually men and men under the age of 40, which is a group where you traditionally don't associate them with chronic health problems. In fact, it seems that this myocarditis likely triggered not by the virus itself, it's the viral proteins that play a role, but it's our own immune system that is flaring up in response to that. Our immune system has a great immediate response where it turns out when it detects that there's an invasion and it shows up in force, which is great for suppressing a disease, but that level of inflammation can sometimes cause other problems in our own organs where evolution has said it's better to crush the disease right away than to worry about long-term effects. Like, let's have you survive the condition first, and even if you survive at 80% capacity. And so it seems that young men who have healthy immune systems are the ones most likely to have some level of myocarditis post-vaccine. Yeah, and there seems to be something else kind of unusual about this vaccine, and that is our immune system is supposedly being trained to grab on to that spike protein and make it inactive. But this study seemed to indicate that some of those spike proteins were still floating and present in the blood, and that is kind of unusual. Right. And what's different about this vaccine is that this vaccine 
doesn't generally insert the spike protein itself, but rather it provides mRNA, which is messenger RNA, which is essentially genetic instructions for how our own body can make that spike protein. This is really efficient for giving a vaccine because it means that instead of needing to grow up billions of virus cells and kill them to put them into the vaccine, we can just print out these instructions and our own body actually synthesizes a small piece of that, of that virus. Our body doesn't make the entire COVID-19 virus inside of it. It just makes this one spike protein, puts this protein out into its own bloodstream, and then says, aha, I know how to deal with that. So in these individuals, it seems that you're right. They're, for some reason, weeks to months after they've received the vaccine, they're still showing levels of circulating spike protein. It may be, and we haven't fully confirmed this yet, but it may be that there is some activity inside the patient's own body where certain cells are continuing to produce that spike protein and thus continuing to put it into the bloodstream where it can trigger an immune reaction. So do we know why this is happening in young men more than any other population? We don't know exactly why this is happening in individuals just yet. It may be because their immune system is better able to immediately respond to some of those circulating continuing levels, or it may be that something about these individuals is leading to that protein sticking around for longer. That's still something we're going to have to discover. Right now, a lot of our data is based on clinical observations and clinical evidence and outcomes. We haven't been able to necessarily track down exactly where any reservoir of this spike protein may still be lingering and what may be causing it. So the the takeaway is, uh, should we be concerned about this? How much of a worry does this seem to be? We shouldn't be concerned at this point. The One of the biggest observations that we've made is that vaccine-induced myocarditis is not the same as traditional myocarditis. Traditional myocarditis has led to a range of health outcomes and can lead all the way up to requiring heart transplantation in really serious cases. On the other hand, in the vaccine-induced myocarditis that we've observed more recently, more than 95% of the cases have been so minor that they've actually resolved on the 90 days without requiring any surgical intervention. So the vast majority of people who are developing symptoms see those symptoms clear up after a couple months. On the other hand, we do know that COVID itself is able to trigger myocarditis. When we're infected with actual COVID, it tends to attack a wide range of organs in our body, and that can include the heart if it gets into the bloodstream. And COVID-induced myocarditis has proved to be more severe than the variant that we've seen from the vaccine. Because of that, I would say that the vaccine should not necessarily be something where the risk is so great that it outweighs the benefit of being protected against COVID-19. And even though in young men, they are least likely to have serious effects from COVID itself and most likely to get myocarditis induced by the vaccine, it's still worth it for these people to vaccinate or give themselves boosters because of who they associate with. The biggest goal with these vaccinations is not just for us to protect ourselves, but also for us to be able to protect the entire community, including other people who may be immunocompromised or may have weaker immune systems that we interact with. And I know that, you know, I am a young man, I am under 40, I still plan to get this because I interact with family members and friends who have risk factors for COVID or are unable to receive the vaccine for certain reasons, and I want to make sure that I'm not the one who transmits the disease to them. Yeah, I get that. Um, 
Although, let me be devil's advocate and just be those voice of people who would say, but there's no evidence. I mean, we have lots of evidence that this does not prevent infection. It does not prevent transmission. We still, where we started out with our belief about the vaccine and the virus has changed pretty substantially. Uh, Have you seen anything that makes you confident that that's no longer the case? I wouldn't say that the vaccine completely prevents transmission. But cases in a vaccinated individual are going to be both milder and shorter than in a non-vaccinated individual. So again, if I'm worried only about my risk of spreading this to others, by being vaccinated, I both reduce the severity of symptoms for myself, but I also reduce the amount of time in which I can transmit this to others. And that still adds up to a benefit. And again, that is Dr. Sam Westrick. He is a scientist and a writer who earned his Ph.D. in genetics. So like the cardiologist we heard from earlier in the program, someone who understands the science here is telling us there's no significant risk from the COVID vaccine for young people. I want to believe that's true because how this vaccine works could actually save your life from cancer. Long after COVID is in the rearview mirror, these mRNA vaccines, the technology that drives them, it's going to be in use and probably more widely than ever. And we'll explain why that matters to you as we continue on the Health Call Radio Hour here on WoWo. This is the Health Call Radio Hour, where treatments are always free, the stethoscope is never cold, and you don't have to wear an exam gown. Now, back to health and wellness correspondent, Lee Kelso. It is hard to deny the credibility of public health has really taken it on the nose in response to the pandemic. That may prove to be one of the most long-lasting and, I'm afraid, dangerous consequences of COVID-19. Remember when everyone was wiping down doorknobs and shopping carts because we were told the virus was not airborne and could live on surfaces? Well, now, of course, we know the virus is airborne, and in fact, that's the primary method of transmission. The experts were wrong about that and many other aspects of COVID. Remember the mad rush to create ventilators? Now thousands of those things are sitting in warehouses. Not only did experts make faulty claims and assumptions along the way, but it now appears they actually were working to keep doubters quiet. The Twitter files contain indications that drug companies and the government were cooperating with Twitter, Facebook, and the media to quiet those who raised doubts and those who question the vaccines. That seems to have a long-lasting impact in the public's mind. 60% of the public now has refused the latest bivalent COVID booster, even while the CDC is recommending them for children as young as seven months old. Sam Westrick is a scientist and a writer, and he says it's smart, we'd be smart, to look beyond all of that doubt and look forward to what he says is the great potential of the core of the COVID vaccine, the mRNA technology. Despite some of this, uh, some of these recent papers, the mRNA technology that was applied in creating this vaccine is still a huge leap forward. I mentioned previously that because we use mRNA, we don't have to cook up huge amounts of the virus itself, which would then kill and break apart in order to make vaccine. All we have to provide are the instructions in order for the body to actually make the component itself, identify that component, and learn how to destroy that component. 
But the real big advantage of these mRNA-based vaccines is that it is so easy for us to edit those instructions. Think about if you have instructions on how to build, you know, let's say, a set of Legos. You can send the instructions to someone else far more easily than you can send the finished, completed product to other people. And additionally, if you then later say, actually, we want to build a different structure, we see that the virus is mutated and we need a new target in order to make sure that we stay up to date, it's much easier to make those minor changes to the mRNA and then provide a new mRNA vaccine instead of having to find this new strain of a virus, grow it up, sure that this is accurate and this is the best matching virus, and then distribute that in a vaccine. I think one place we're going to see this start being applied is in seasonal flu vaccines. Interestingly, the way that the flu works is there's often at least a dozen different strains of the flu that are on the loose every year. The flu virus is able to mutate incredibly quickly. And so the flu that we catch in 2020 is not going to necessarily be the same flu that is running around in 2021. Traditionally, what we've done is scientists have gathered and they have actually selected the strain that they anticipate to be the most likely to spread in the next year. And that's what we vaccinate against. But that does not capture all of the different strains. Now, with mRNA-based vaccines, what we may be able to do is actually say, we are going to create messenger RNAs that code for each of these 12 different strains. So you could get one flu shot that protects you against a dozen strains of the flu. Or if it turns out that the flu strain that we guessed the previous year was what was going to take off, and that turns out not to be the case, we can much more quickly adapt and make sure that we roll out vaccines that are able to target the disease that's actually out there instead of vaccinating against what we thought was going to be prevalent a year ago, which may have turned out not to be the case. You know, I think another area that's showing a lot of promise is in virus-related cancers. We're seeing a number of new treatments that are coming out where they're using mRNA technology to create vaccines against those cancers. And I guess, you know, the big fear I have, frankly, is to editorialize just a little bit here, uh, is that there's been so much angst over COVID and the virus and, and the misinformation that's flying around out there. Is that going to set us back from other potentially very effective, helpful uses against melanoma, glioblastoma, and so many other cancers that are just devastating today. And, and I guess we're going to know that as time marches forward. Yeah, I cannot say for certain, but I am hopeful that the fears that may be persisting today will not necessarily impact some of the development of, a, of solutions using this new technology in the future. I think when it comes to a lot of the scientific research, researchers tend to focus more on what's been published in peer-reviewed studies and papers, and those papers have shown that there are huge benefits to using mRNA as the basis in order to provide the antigens that you're teaching the immune system how to target. And so when it comes to research into cancer, into some of these other diseases, we may be able to say, we may be able to look at the data and say the data shows that this is an approach worth testing. And when we're talking about fighting a cancer, we are willing to try pretty much any method. You know, Cancer is one of these diseases where every time that we make a new innovation in curing that cancer or in targeting that cancer or in reducing the incidence of that cancer, that saves many lives. And that's something where pharmaceutical companies really value that and really push that. So I think that these companies are going to see the benefit of using mRNA-based approaches and are going to continue driving forward. 
knowing that even if that just offers an incremental advancement, that's still going to yield huge rewards in terms of lives saved and uh, healthy years that are added on to people's lifespans. How soon will we see all of this? Well, there are mRNA treatments in advanced clinical trials right now for advanced melanoma, lung cancer, and several solid tumors, including the most deadly forms of cancer. The bruising that we've all taken from COVID, I'm afraid, isn't over yet. China now facing an unprecedented COVID wave. It is tradition to leave the big Chinese cities and return to your village for the Lunar New Year. So millions of Chinese are on the move. And so that means the explosion in COVID cases that came along after the end of their zero COVID policy, it's gonna get worse. The Al Jazeera network recently explored what COVID in China could mean for the rest of us. So let's listen to just a brief clip as they talk to experts about whether this uncontrolled wave in China could lead to new COVID variants able to reinfect the rest of the world. So far though, based on the genetic data provided by the Chinese government at least, there's no sign of that. Anytime you have spread at a massive scale, it does allow for the opportunity for the virus to evolve. That's simply a product of the virus being replicated and spread from person to person at a massive scale. And although it's possible that that can happen and may have happened, the dominant strains being reported are versions of Omicron that we already have. And so the relative risk to other regions of the world is pretty low. Then the other big question is about how all of this affects the global economy. There's a saying that when China sneezes, the global economy catches a cold. China is such a huge engine for powering the global economy. One example of how zero COVID affected uh, the global economy is that it basically choked so many of these global supply chains. And all of a sudden, people were having difficulty sourcing things as basic as a paper cup. But a side effect of China's recovery might be that it makes global inflation worse than it already is. As Chinese factories and businesses get going again, they'll need to import more commodities like oil and iron ore. That increases demand and pushes up their price, which can then have a knock-on effect on the price of so many other things we buy. And it's a painful reminder that this thing's not over yet. Huh, couldn't have said it better myself. I know we're all sick and tired of hearing about COVID, but on this program, the virus and how it's changing healthcare and our bodies, we're going to have to keep that on the radar screen and I'll keep you posted. Hey, that's all the time we have this week. Drop me a note on the Health Call website. I read every message and you'll always get a reply. I thank you for listening and I hope I'll see you again next week. You've been listening to the Health Call Radio Hour. The discussion of conditions and treatments on this program is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment by a healthcare professional who knows you and your health needs. Find the podcast of today's episode wherever you get your podcasts, or watch extended video versions of today's interviews on the Health Call website at healthcall.live. While you're there, drop us a line to ask a question or suggest a topic for a future broadcast. Join us each week on this station for another edition of the Health Call Radio Hour. Podcasts by Federated Media.